Okay, we are in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, reading from, well, well last time we, we read about marriage, and then Jesus continues on this thought. Let me pick it up from verse 7, Matthew 19, verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Okay, so some people have wondered, how come I'm always talking about sexual topics? I just want you to know I covered, I covered a six-week series last year was actually done about a year ago. And so I, I haven't touched it since then with this class, except in the context of when we hit it in our normal study in the Scriptures. And so in this context, let me just mention that, that I realize many of you have come from broken homes and you've seen real messes in marriage and you wonder, along with the disciples, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry and it's unfortunate that you've seen that modeled in that way. In my view, marriage is the most exciting thing in my life. I am so glad that I am married. I love my wife so much. And to me, just the thought of not being married is, is, is a miserable thought. I've been married almost 25 years, and I love my wife so much. And we went over some of this last week. But... It's easy in the midst of seeing trouble. When Jesus is, once this word divorce comes in, then all these other words like, like immorality have to come in. And when it does, they said, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. And Jesus speaks about something very physical now. You know, we, we, we like to think that the, that the Bible is all spiritual stuff. Well, it's not all. It deals a lot with the physical. And what he says, he says, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. A eunuch is one who is castrated. All right? A male who is castrated. So he's saying that some men are born this way. In other words, they don't have this physical desire. Some men are born like that. You think, Jesus, come on, this is the Bible. You shouldn't be talking like this. Well, Look, it's his book. He's the author. He writes it the way he wants. We just read it. And so he says, he says, some men are born that way. Others were made eunuchs by men. So there was a practice of actually castrating men, especially those that worked in the palace with the king's wives and concubines, just to make sure there wouldn't be any trouble. And so they would get castrated. 
And then he says, there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that is very hard for us to fathom. It doesn't bode well with our society. But Jesus is saying, this is the course of history. There are some men that were so dedicated to the kingdom of heaven, they wanted no distractions, and they castrated themselves. He says, but, but then he finally says, He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. And now look what he had set up in verse 11. Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given. And he ends verse 12 with, He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Those two parts tie together. One of the things that God gives men is a desire in this realm. And... It moves us toward marriage. It is a good thing. It is a good thing. If it weren't there, many men wouldn't get married. One of the things that comes in in our day is that men who are constantly fulfilled in this way, in their desire, without marriage, often don't seek marriage very intently. Because they say, I get it without being married. Sometimes women feel, I have to give myself to this man in order to keep him liking me, or else he's going to go to somebody else. And the thing is, that just the opposite can often occur. The man is getting it with this woman, and so there's no need to seek her in marriage. He's already getting it. What God has ordered, as soon as the order begins to let go, we start breaking all sorts of orders that are there. And it actually makes our life more difficult. Young women, if there is a man that you feel you need to give your body to in this way in order to keep him, let him go. Let him go. You don't want this type of man. Because what's going to happen in marriage now that you've been objectified and in marriage when, you know, he's kind of tired of you? What's he going to then go to the next person? And that often happens. This is a very common scenario in our world. Two people meet at work, they end up going out a few times together, and then they end up in bed together. And then they end up in bed together several times a week, and then they start thinking, well, maybe it's just better if we move in together because we can save money that way. Why pay two places for rent when we can pay one place because we're together so much at night anyway? So they end up moving in together. And then after three or four years after being together in that way, they see people around them having kids and getting married and all these things. And five years into this, they say, well, maybe we ought to get married. And so they're getting married for the wrong reasons. And then they get married and things don't work out quite right because it was never meant to go in this pattern. Jesus says there, most men cannot accept this statement that it's better not to marry because there's a physical thing there that God himself has put in. Except for eunuchs who have been born that way from their mother's womb. There are men that don't have that physical desire and they can say, okay, maybe it's better not to marry. But for most men, they can't accept it. And so if you're a man and you kind of have desires like this and you're wondering, 
Does God want me to marry? The answer is yes. Unless you were born without that desire, unless you rarely have that sort of physical desire as a man, you were made by God to marry. So get this thought out of your mind, maybe God wants me not to marry. No. And I don't think God wants you to make yourself a eunuch either. Right? You are to marry. God has someone for you. And women don't feel like you have to give yourself to somebody in this way. In fact, what you do is you hurt the chances of a good long-term relationship by doing this. And any man that says, i got to have it, you don't want that man. Because if he can't control himself before marriage, how do you expect him to control himself while in marriage? Because there's going to be many people that tempt him. And Jesus relates it right back to the physical. He says there is a physical dimension here. So when you just say, well, I don't want marriage, because marriage leads to problems. He says, there are some people that have been called in that way. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, I wish more people were dedicated to the kingdom of God. But it's clear that there are a certain number of people that God has called in that way. And for the rest of us, He has called us to marry. And you can pray to God and He hears you. Say, Lord, provide for me a wife in your perfect time. According to your choosing, Lord, provide for me a wife. And God will hear your prayer. Why is it that we have to say, well, go figure, God answered. God does this. He's in the business of it, and His Word makes it clear. All right, let's move on to the next portion. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. And some children were brought to Him so that He might lay His hands on them and pray. And His disciples rebuked them, but Jesus said, let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. You know, it's interesting that Jesus didn't baptize these children. He said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to one such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. But he didn't baptize them. And this is why my understanding of the word of God is, You don't baptize children. Jesus laid his hands on them and he blessed them. He cared a lot about them. He blessed them. Now, the argument for baptizing children, and it's not a bad argument. It may well be a valid argument. Is that there are instances where it says, and Cornelius was saved along with his whole household and they were baptized. Well, were there no children in his household? And therefore, weren't they baptized? The jailer who got saved, he was, he was saved and he was baptized along with his whole household. Were there no children? Or was the Word of God maybe saying that his whole household was baptized, but of course we don't mean the children? So in other words, it's not an invalid argument when someone says you shouldn't baptize children. I don't see a strong argument for it in the Word of God, though. But it's not an invalid argument. And so when people have that argument, I say, fine, you're the parent. Do what you want. I wanted my children to come to an age where they were making a decision for themselves. The other point in this is the children were coming to him. They were bringing some children to him and the disciples rebuked them. I don't know if the disciples rebuked the parents or the children. But it's very easy to rebuke children. 
Get out of here, kid. Don't, don't bother Jesus. I mean, he's, he's teaching the Pharisees here. He's got work to do. Every time the disciples came with a hard attitude towards someone, Jesus would turn the whole thing around. He would say, let him come. Remember, blind Bartimaeus is crying out and they're saying, leave him alone. And as soon as Jesus sees them pushing away this blind man, he says, let him come to me. They want to call down fire and brimstone on the Samaritans who are not welcoming Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes his disciples forever thinking the thought of calling down fire and brimstone on these people that aren't welcoming Jesus. Whenever our hearts are hard toward another individual, Jesus steps in and says, it's okay with me. It may not be okay with you, but it's okay with me. Whenever our hearts become hard against another individual, Jesus reaches out to that very person. You want Jesus to reach out to a person? Become mean to that person. Jesus will specifically bypass you and go to them. That's exactly what he did every time. Every time they tried to turn someone away, he went specifically to that person and he welcomed them. That is what Jesus does. He goes to those who the world does not care about. And the disciples, and I can understand, you know, Jesus is a busy guy. And, you know, the disciples are kind of, they're not running the show Jesus is. But, you know, they kind of set up the sound system and, you know, post the stuff on the internet site for them and the podcasts. They do all of this for them because he's a busy guy. He's out there teaching. And so they feel this sense of having to protect him in some way. But when it comes to people, Jesus goes specifically to the underdog. Every time. Every time. And when we're harsh towards someone, Jesus goes to that very person. He says, let them come to me. He says, you know, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And he blesses them. He puts, it says, that he laid his hands on them. Jesus identifies with them. In other words, he shows so much that he loves these kids. If you are wondering whether you should go into ministry, should you have a role in full-time ministry? Charles Spurgeon, who is the Prince of Preachers, says this, as he had this training school for ministers. He would say that you can tell what a man is made of in the way he treats children. Does the pastor welcome children? If the children don't like the pastor, there's a good chance that that man had some real problems with God, because kids can see it. And he trains the people in his school to reach out to the children, to specifically ask the parents, how are your children today? How are your children doing? Do you reach out to children? If you have a tendency to say to kids, you little brat, and that happens. You know, my, my, my son came to me one day. He says, I don't like that person. I said, why? You know, it was one of the, the college students who came to my home. He says, because the first thing to, he said to me is, how you doing, you little brat? That told me about that person, that they may be a fine person, but they're not going to be called into ministry. Because you have to have at least a welcoming heart to children if you're called to ministry. You may have a very successful work, you know, as a physician or as a, as a, as a, as a pediatrician, but, but you're not going to have 
a ministry to children. You really know, have to know how to relate to young people, to children. Jesus did. He welcomed them and he laid his hands on them and he prayed for them. Now let's turn to, to verse 16, the rich young ruler. And, and we'll spend some time on this. The rich young ruler, Matthew 19, verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may et- obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who's good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was, he was one who owned much property. Okay, so this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good thing, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What are the good things, or what is the one good thing, what is it to obtain eternal life? I want to do something in order to obtain eternal life. What good thing shall I do? Very specific question. What good thing shall I do? And Jesus said, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. He says, there is only one who is good. Jesus, throughout this whole thing, as we're going to see, is he's going to take from this good thing, this good work, and he's going to point it right toward who is good. What is good versus who is good. He's going to turn it right around. Some people say, therefore, Jesus couldn't have been God because... But Jesus never denies that he's totally good. In fact, he says, why are you asking me about what's good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. There is only one who is good. Why are you asking me? One could just as well say he's affirming his own goodness. He never said there's only one who is good and not me. No, he said, there's only one who's good. Why are you asking me? He says, there's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Because the man's question was very specific. He said, what good thing shall I do to enter eternal life? He said, you want to know? Keep the commandments. He said, which one? There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament that Moses gave. 613, not just 10. There are 10 that are called the Ten Commandments. It was those 10 that God wrote with his own finger upon a stone. Twice, because Moses broke them once, and God rewrote it and gave it to Moses. Moses broke it when he saw the children of Israel sinning. He was just so disgusted that he threw it down, and God understood and rewrote it for him. 
But there were 613 commandments. Well, how do we know? Because the Jews have gone through and counted them all. Counted them. 613. He says, which one should I obey? So look what Jesus does. He says in verse 18, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are ten, of the ten commandments in Exodus chapter 20, Jesus never touches the first four. He skips the first four. The first four are this, in Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship an idol. You shall not take God's name in vain. And you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those are the first four. Jesus never mentions the first four. Aren't those important? Well, to any practicing Jew, even to this day, if they are an Orthodox Jew, a practicing Jew, they don't violate the first four, even to this day. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not worship an idol. You say, well, in the, in the Bible, lots of Jews worship idols. Never was it a problem in Israel after the dispersion, after the, 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 the diaspora to Babylon. Then they went to Persia after 70 years in captivity. They came back. Never was idol worshiping a problem again for the Jewish nation after that. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you talk to a Jew today, they will never even say God when they write it. They even write G-D because they say God's name is so holy, lest I profane it. They won't even say his name even in the context of a theological discussion. Even to this day. Even you will see them sometimes even write Lord L-R-D. And I know this because I, I communicate with a lot of Jews in Israel. We have theological discussions. And I write God and they write G-D back. Lest they use his name in a bad context. Jews even to this day are very careful about taking the Lord's name in vain. They don't even take God's name in a good context for fear that they might defame it. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You take any Orthodox Jew at sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, they will not work, they won't even ride in the car. You say, come on. No, it's real. I mean, it is real. They just don't do it. The Sabbath has always been this way. And if you think, well, I observe the Sabbath, I don't work on Sundays. Sundays is not the Sabbath, never has been, never will be. Sunday may be your day of rest, but it's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is very specific. You say, oh, well, come on. Well, you come on. If you're going to say that I observe the Sabbath, I keep that. Well, then the Sabbath is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. Always has been this way, will never change. It is the seventh day not the first day, and it went from sundown to sundown. The day begins at, at sundown, roughly 6 p.m., whenever sundown is for that day. That's when, the, that's when that, that day begins. So he skips the first four. But then he takes the next five. The next five are... If you look in Exodus chapter 20, the next five are, you shall, not mur- you, 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 you shall honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. 
And Jesus takes those. And He specifically says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 18, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the you shall love your neighbor as yourself doesn't come from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. That comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Why? Because that is a summary of those five verses. Those five verses, so the first four are our relationship to God. The Jews' relationship to God. You shall have no other God before me. You shouldn't worship an idol. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And remember the Sabbath day. Honoring God on that day. The next five deal with our relationship to other people. And he says that is summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to murder him. If you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're going to honor your father and your mother. You're not going to steal from him. You're not going to tell lies about him. And you're not going to sleep with his wife. So he says. So he hits him with the other five. And this young man says, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? He says, I do all this. I honor my mother and my father. I've never killed anyone. I don't go telling lies about people. I've never slept with my neighbor's wife. And I've never stolen. Never stolen from my neighbor. Jesus does not contest the fact that he's observed all of those five. Jesus never contests that. He doesn't say, oh, I remember when you were a little Jewish boy in Hebrew school. He doesn't say that. He doesn't contest that point. He says, okay. So one through four, he never tests them on because any good Jew does that. Five, six, seven, eight, and nine, the guy says, I do it all. And then Jesus hits him with number ten. The tenth commandment You shall not covet. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor, it says in Exodus chapter 20. There is something about coveting. You know, this, this, this whole idea of coveting is actually quite unique among all the commandments. Look in Philippians chapter 3. Keep your finger right there in Matthew and turn over to Philippians. You've got Philippians, Ephesians, uh, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse... Verse 5. We'll, we'll start. We'll, uh, okay, verse 5. Paul is here talking about himself. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul speaks of himself as to righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. I was found blameless. Nobody, nobody found anything wrong in my life. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. As the law, I was a Pharisee. 
I was a persecutor of the church. I was really zealous. I was blameless concerning the law. What law? The 613 commandments. You could find nothing in Paul's life where he violated any of those. You could find nothing where he violated any of those. That's what he says. As to the law, I was found blameless. Now turn back to Romans. Romans chapter 7. There was one thing that got Paul, though. On one point. One thing that got him. Romans chapter 7. Reading from verse 7. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from, for, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive in me and I died. Look what he says in verse 8. Coveting of every kind was in me. This word coveting, you will see in, if you have an annotated version of the Bible, it says it could be translated lust. And lust isn't just of the sexual. It's trying to get something that doesn't belong to me, wanting something that is not mine. He says, there was coveting me in, of every kind. As to the law, I was found blameless. Because everything else in that law of relation to men, you can substantiate. Does he steal? Well, I caught him stealing. He obviously has violated the law. I caught him in bed with my wife. I caught him, I caught him, uh, you know, you, you, I, I caught him dishonoring his father and his mother. Those can be substantiated. Coveting cannot be. You don't know what's in my heart. I don't know what's in your heart. You cannot be found guilty of coveting. It's in your heart. Paul says, as to the law, I was found blameless. But there was one thing that got me. The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. There was, in fact, coveting of every kind. Jesus says to this rich young ruler... Jesus says to him, the Tenth Commandment, rather than to say, what about coveting? He just puts him to the test. In verse 21, Jesus said of Matthew chapter 19, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus doesn't ask us all to sell all our possessions. I've heard Christians say, Jesus says we should sell our possessions and give all to the poor. That's not the case. He didn't say that. He said, if you, you, you young man, who are trying to justify yourself and to say, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? For you, this is what you must do. You must sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Well, if this guy was very rich, was all his money and his property... He probably had money in the bank. You say, well, they didn't have banks in those days. They very much did. Jesus used in his parable. He said, remember in his parable, he says, you should have taken your money and put it in the bank and then I would have received it back with interest. Why did Jesus speak of banks and interest 
if the institution didn't exist. It would have made no sense to the people in that day. So the institution of banking certainly did exist. He never says, go to the bank and get all your money and give it to the poor. He says, go and sell your property and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasures in heaven. Because immediately he gets at that man, the tenth commandment. One through nine, I'll agree with you, you're all right. But the tenth one, I'll get you. Coveting. Lust. The man says, tell me, what must I do in order to be saved? Jesus said, what good thing must I do, he says. And Jesus said, good? There is one who is good. But you want to know what you must do? This is what you must do. And then the young man went away grieved. Why? Because Jesus goes right at the heart. We keep coming to Jesus and saying, what do I need to do in life? What do I need to do? And Jesus, you know, put out our hand. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus shakes our hand. And then what does he do? He takes his hand and he goes, places it right on our heart. He puts it right there. And he says, this, is what I want. I want your heart. The who you are means more to me than anything else. Whether you can be found blameless or not, I want your heart. As a parent, I see many other parents and many other homes. The best thing that you can do as a parent is to maintain a truthful heart about who you are. Christian homes, evangelical Christian homes in particular, can have great problems with their children. Because we want them to do this, do this, do this, you go to church, you do this. And if we're not honest about our hearts, I fail in this way. I am sorry. I have failed you as a parent in this. I was wrong. If we are not honest, there is rebellion of all sorts. Because it is so easy in our Christian realm to read this Bible and think we've got to get buttoned up on this and buttoned up on this and buttoned up on this. And Jesus said, it's the who God is more than the what you do. The what you do isn't bad, but it's the who you are. This is what distinguishes us. You know, people will say, oh, look at these people in these religions. You know, they pray X number of times a day and they seem so holy. Oh, the heart. It's the heart. It's the heart. Jesus gets right at the heart. Not that waking up in the morning is wrong to pray. That is a good thing. That is a good discipline. But it is the heart. Jesus wants your heart. He wants my heart. And he gets right back to this man. And is there something in the way of our hearts? Will we be honest with ourselves about our hearts? I do not judge young people. I have enough sin in my life for three lifetimes. Anything that you commit, I think I've probably committed. Jesus wants to get at our hearts. And that's exactly where he zeroes right in with this man. At his heart. And then he says to the man, when you do this, come and follow me. He gave him the same calling that he gave to his twelve disciples. Follow me. I mean, what a call. He calls him. He says, follow me. And he says, I want your heart more than anything else. Will you be honest about your heart? 
I know no other way to have our heart exposed to us than reading the Scriptures. Will you read the Scriptures and allow God to speak to your heart and reveal it? young man came to me when I was 18 years old. And he started sharing with me the Gospel. In my own room, he came to me, he was with Navigators Campus Ministry, and he said, you're a sinner. I said, I am not. He said, you are. I said, I am not. I didn't even have this concept of being a sinner. And then he said to me, he opened up to Matthew chapter 5, and it says, he showed me this verse where Jesus said, If you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And I said, gulp. I knew what adultery was. Is this the definition of sin? He will take something. And he goes right to the lust in our heart. He says, are you sure you're not a sinner? Are you sure you've come to such a great point in your Christian walk? That you're so much better than other people? He says, only God is good. God alone is good. And this is what he calls us to. To walk like him. He says, do this and you'll be perfect. Now, is this young man for this one sin of coveting not going to get to heaven? Well, that's what it says. It says, it says in, in the epistle of James, chapter 2, verse 10, If you keep the whole law, but are found guilty in one of them, you are guilty of the whole law. You're guilty of the whole thing if you're found guilty in one of them. So if you say, well, you know, I've been, well, maybe I, I, I have coveted, I have lusted in my heart, but I haven't done all of this. The Bible says you're guilty of it all. Many people ask me, can a Jew be saved without Christ? In other words, can they be saved by keeping the law? And my response to them is, absolutely. Jesus even said so. Just like he did to this young ruler. But good luck. <laughs> because if you fail in one of them, you failed in them all. So a Jew can be saved. But the only Jew that I know who didn't fail in even one was Jesus. The one who was good in the heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. That you bring us back to the who you are. You are inherently good. And Father, thank you that you want the hearts of these young people. You want their hearts. Father, I pray that they would walk in the integrity of their hearts constantly, day by day, offering up their hearts to you, saying, God, forgive me. And Lord, I thank you for the demonstration that the Tenth Commandment, the coveting, which is also now laid out in the New Testament, is the one that gets us the very lust of our hearts. Father, I pray for these young people that you would cause them to be good parents, walking uprightly, but also having that sense in their hearts and being willing to confess to their children and to their families the weakness that they have within. Father, I pray your blessing to be upon them. Lord, I pray your kindness and your grace to be showered on them and that from this class, many young marriages would, would form that would be, have godly, godly parents. Father, that you would so work in their lives that they would grow to be godly parents, ones who love you and honor you.
And Father, that these young women here would offer up their bodies to You and walk in that way. And realize that Your way is right. Your way is perfect. Father, thank You for Your Word. In the name of Jesus. Amen.